I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 3rd, 2011. We are experiencing literally perfect fall weather here in central Indiana. High 60s, clear skies, cool, crisp mornings, and the leaves are turning and it's gorgeous and <sighs> I gotta t- I gotta admit fall's like one of my favorite seasons of the year thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is Chris Rosebro I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God there is no shortage of crazy bizarre things being said out there that just don't square with scripture. And uh, as a result of these crazy things, people are believing false things about God and uh, false doctrine is not, is not, is not a, uh, a, well, uh, one of those things that doesn't matter. It matters. And the reason I say that is because God's word says that it matters. So, uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, where where are we at right now? Uh, last week was all things T.D. Jakes. I think we got one more segment that we're going to talk about T.D. Jakes, and that's because uh, Thibidiana Buile has um, weighed in regarding this and uh, and has given basically a, you know, a take on this that, that really he's qualified to speak about. And, and I touched on it uh, last week. Talking about how uh, the you know the the other piece of all of this is not only is T.D. Jakes a, a modalist. I mean the the evidence is strongly there that he's a modalist. Uh, but the other piece of this is that uh, uh, T.D. Jakes is somebody who has literally been fleecing and financially um, stealing from the African American community and the false doctrine that he holds to. It's it, it's so much more than just modalism. It's it's the whole word faith, uh, you blab it and grab it, name it and claim it, plant a seed. That means send money, uh, sow a seed and and reap financial blessings. Uh, heresy that, I mean, it's it, this it just literally 
the untold tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of folks in the African-American community who have had, literally been robbed blind by this uh, this guy. It's uh, it, That's the other piece of this that has to be touched on. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith because of the fact that I've got so much that I want to talk about. We have Rob Bell update. We have Rob Del- Bell update. We have... We got two things from Thabidiana Buile that I want to read today. One is called Multi-Site Churches Are From the Devil. Multi-Site Churches Are From the Devil. This is uh, an interesting article, and I think Thabidi has some great points that are worth passing along. Uh, the Rob Bell uh, update, it, well, he's uh, he's got a television show that he's uh, uh, currently working on. Um, we got a, a Pyromaniacs blog update, uh, at least from Spurgeon, and the name of the uh, the the blog post is "Charity Toward Heresy?" Question mark Charity Toward Heresy? And then I've got a uh, I've got a Perry Noble update that I want to uh, th- that I want to tackle. And there's two things that uh, Perry Noble has recently said. One has to do with uh preaching about sex in the church and then the other is is that uh the the, the headline out there that uh the Perry Noble his latest piece at the uh, Christian Post is that nice christian boys and girls make him sick and i mean it's oh man there's just so many things wrong with this it's not even funny uh and then uh let's see here uh hour number 2 today you know I, I think that's all well actually I got a Carl Truman piece that I want to throw into the mix uh regarding the cult of celebrity uh, that I thought I would tag him at the end of the of th- uh, one of the Beatty's pieces and uh, and then on our sermon review today I've got a Kerry Shook sermon that uh demonstrates exactly the wrong thing to do when it comes to uh preaching from the uh Genesis text regarding the flood and uh, it, it, it it's just it's a bad handling of God's word that is off point on off topic, and uh, what he does is he allegorizes the text, and then it, and then he psychologizes it. And uh, the, the idea here is is that oh look Noah had a flood in his life that he had to deal with. What don't you have floods that you have to deal with in your own life? Like you know floods of insecurity, floods of worry, and things like that. It's it. This is not 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 how you handle the biblical text. But I. Uh, but the, the, more importantly, the reason I picked it is is because it wrongly teaches something that somehow we are made right with God by our obedience. We're not. We are. We are not made right with God by our obedience to the law. That turns law and gospel on its head. In fact, I'll kind of touch on this at the you know at this side of the the, uh, the second hour, and that is is that um, Christians, how are we to look at our sanctification? How what is the right way of understanding this? And uh, and what it basically comes down to is this: you kind of put it on a spectrum. You are born, you are conceived dead in trespasses and sins, plain and simple. You are not capable of choosing God. God chooses you. God regenerates you through means, uh, through the means of you know. We'll go with the simple one at this point: through the means of His Word, through the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, through the gospel specifically. God regenerates you. He raises you from the dead replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Uh, but this side of his return and this side of uh, the resurrection, you still have your sinful flesh to contend with on a day-to-day basis. 
and your sinful flesh, well, it likes to sin. It's, it's, it, oh man, it, mortifying is the right way to look at the way the, the, uh, the ancient church and you know, the historic church has talked about it. The, the need for mortifying the flesh, this, this, your sinful flesh has it out for you. That's the best way I can, if you're a Christian, your sinful flesh is going to be warring against uh, the things of God. It does not want to do good works. It, it, I, it is stubborn beyond all belief. And so you still wrestle with your sinful nature. So what happens is, is the Holy Spirit begins the, the, the work of mortifying the sinful flesh and, and, and more and more you begin to reflect. And I would say very dimly. And I would say through a glass darkly, you begin to reflect the righteousness of God in the sense that you begin to make progress in putting your sinful flesh to death and doing good works. <clears throat> but so he, so the idea here is, is that so when God sees us, the reason why God is pleased with us, the the reason why uh, God blesses us, and you know, in in things of that nature, including uh, chastising, including disciplining, not not punishing, but disciplining us, um, is because not because of our obedience, but because we're in Christ. So Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to you as if you are the one who lived it. And what happens is, is that all of your sins, they're not imputed to you, they're imputed to Christ. And so the reason why God is pleased with you is because you trust in him and His righteous, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. You have to think of it that way. These seeker-driven guys have got it 180 degrees backwards. They really think that somehow they can pull off the law in such a way, be obedient in such a way, that they are earning God's favor and blessing. And this is really kind of a light version of the Galatian heresy, but it's the Galatian heresy nonetheless. Um, the, the, yeah, you know, and see, here's the deal. If you really think that you earn God's blessing by your keeping of the law, then you don't understand the magnitude of what it is that the law is demanding of you. Perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor. That's what, I mean, you know, that's what it comes down to. And every sin that you commit demonstrates that you do not love God perfectly, whether it be a sin uh, of omission or a sin of commission. Whether you committed the sin in thought, word, or deed, it doesn't matter. Every sin that you commit demonstrates your lack of obedience and your lack of love for God and, and, and your deficiency in that. And so it, for the Christian, the good news is that God reckons those sins to Christ and Christ has propitiated God's wrath and, and justice against them. He doesn't, he doesn't reckon them to our account. Um, but, uh, you know, anyway, we'll kind of get into that a little bit more in, uh, in the, in, uh, hour number two, that being the case, one of the things I've been saying that, uh, we were going to be doing is a new edition of Marty Python's flying circus church. And I want to, uh, it's been a while since we've had a new, uh, Marty Python's flying circus church. And, uh, so I'd like to premiere right now, uh, our latest addition to the, uh, Marty Python's Flying Circus Church repertoire. And, uh, this is, uh, in honor of Melissa Fisher. And the name of this Marty Python is Holy Ghost Answering Machine. And when we're done with this, we'll dive into the program proper. Here we go. Marty Python's Flying Circus Church.
You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. But I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name. I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty mighty adventure that adventurous heart that you have the lord is going to really really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you and it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day so vincent come to the lord wait no longer vacillate between two opinions no longer Yeah, that's <laughs> the song song I picked for uh, this particular story from the uh, Christian Post. The headline reads, Love Wins Author Rob Bell to Co-Produce New Spiritual Drama. Uh, <clears throat> this is by Herb, uh, Herbert Pinnock of the uh, Christian Post. The story reads, Controversial author and pastor Rob Bell is teaming up with Lost co-creator Carlton uh, Coos to uh, produce a new television show called Stronger which is being described as an unusual spiritual drama and is reportedly loosely based on Rob Bell's life. The pastor announced last week that he will be leaving Mars Hill Bible Church and embark on a new journey that would allow him to devote his full energy 
to sharing the message of God's love with a broader audience. Bell appears to have started on that new journey. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they named it Stronger. I think it should be called Lost 2, even loster than before. And uh, for those of you who are into wagering, you know, know, during football season, you... uh, you 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 pitch into the betting pool during the uh, the football season and you you play the spread and things like that i i think we need to put together some kind of wagering pool regarding this new spiritual television show um co-produced by the um, co-creator of lost and uh, just basically ask the question since this is somehow loosely based on uh, rob bell's life how many episodes in do you think it'll be before we see the rob bell character the person who's depicting Rob Bell before we see that uh, character uh, uh, meditating in the lotus position. Um, Will it be in episode one? Will it be in episode two, three, four? How far into this before we see Rob Bell's character meditating or doing the Lectio Divina in the lotus position? That, of course, after all, is the... um, the burning question that I'm sure everybody is just dying to, you know, to figure out ahead of time. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoke, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flare. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock. Yeah, that means only one thing. We, uh, we're doing a Perry Noble update. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a scene. All right, yeah. Uh, okay, so we got two, uh, the two stories uh, recently put out there. Uh, either by Perry Noble or regarding Perry Noble. The if the first one is entitled "Nice Christian and, uh, Christian Boys and Girls Make Me Sick," and the second one is entitled "South Carolina Pastor Preaches uh, Sex in the Church." Now, I, oh man, there's some problems uh, with both of these. I'm not going to read this entire article, but Perry Noble is the one who put this out, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to just give you a flavor for what this thing's about. If you would like to read the whole thing, you can at the uh, Christian Post. Just type in Perry Noble in the search box there on the homepage and look for the headline, Nice Christian Boys and Girls Make Me Sick. But uh, read. let me read this for you. This is Perry Noble writing. It says, I had the privilege of speaking at Clemson's FCA the other night and felt led to go in a direction towards the beginning of the message that I hadn't planned, and so I want to expound a little on a few things here. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Uh, By saying that Perry Noble said that he felt led to go in a direction that he didn't plan, he's blaming this message on God the Holy Spirit. Just so you know, this is God the Holy Spirit apparently steered Perry Noble in this direction, and um, I've got uh, some serious um, reservations uh, affirming that God the Holy Spirit is the one who was guiding Perry Noble to do what 
say and do what he did. So uh, let's uh, let's get that right out. So right off the bat, in this piece, Perry Noble is basically making an appeal to the Holy Spirit and saying that this is what God the Holy Spirit led him to say. So here's what he said. I said, quote, my daughter is going to date one day, and the last thing I want her bringing home to meet me is a nice Christian boy. If she does that, I will probably have to punch that dude in the throat. Again, let me read this again. Uh, My daughter is going to date one day, and the last thing I want her bringing home to meet me is a, quote, nice Christian boy. If she does that, I will probably have to punch that dude in the throat. Now, I'm just going to pause right there. I don't care what he says after this point. We got a problem. Because um, uh, I'm not seeing the love of Christ here, nor am I seeing the gospel. I don't care how he's defining a, quote, nice Christian boy at this point. But to say that he's that the, the right way of handling a, a nice Christian boy, even flippantly, is to punch that person in the throat, um, that falls way, 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 way outside of what the Scriptures tell us to do. By the way, he does define a uh, nice Christian boy and a nice Christian girl. You, you hear, The definition is, is, let me put it, clean it up for you. The definition of a nice Christian boy is one who goes to church but struggles with sexual sin. Um, a nice Christian girl is a nice is somebody who who goes to church and does the bible study thing but struggles with sexual sexual sins. Okay, now I'm not I'm not advocating sexual sins at all. Uh, but this is not the biblical way of handling somebody who is struggling with a sexual sin. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 kind of lays out what we should be doing here. Here's what it says. Brothers If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So the idea here is is that um when when we have Christian brothers and sisters who are wrestling with besetting sins, doesn't matter if it's sexual or not, that seems to be the kind of pervasive thing that's run through the culture as a result of easy access to porn on the internet. The point is this is that um somebody you know, okay, somebody who is a Christian brother who's struggling with a sin, uh in your daughter brings home I, I guarantee, by the way, kind of a side note here, um, I, I've got two daughters. One of them is married, and um, and uh, I can say that when my first daughter brought home the other guy, um, I knew that he was going to be a sinner. Yeah, he's a great Christian kid. He's a fine Christian young man. Um, but I knew before he even stepped foot in my home that he was going to be a sinner. How was I confident of this? Well, plain and simple, because I can read the Bible. So I knew that you know whoever my daughter married was going to be dealing with sin um and i can guarantee you having never met my next daughter's um uh husband boy that's a weird way of talking she's <clears throat> not quite to that age yet anyway um the the point is that you know she's only 14 uh but uh, when she finally meets whoever that guy is and i get to meet him um i have no intention of punching him in the throat 
And if he's struggling with a sin, um, a, a besetting sin or any kind of sin, um, my job is to come alongside of him and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Because we don't overcome sins by punching people in the throat, nor do we restore people by punching them in the throat. Um, so, yeah, when P- Perry Noble says, my daughter's going to date one day, and the last thing I want her bringing home to meet me is a nice Christian boy. If she does that, I will probably have to punch that dude in the throat. Um, yeah, that's not... Um, I think Perry Noble is, again, demonstrating that he's actually not... He doesn't meet the qualifications for a pastor, um, like at all, um, like not even close at all, because uh, a pastor is supposed to be somebody who's above reproach. Sitting there talking about punching dudes in the throat, um, yeah, that this this is not this is not um, any way that any Christian should be speaking about another Christian who is struggling with a sin, especially even a sexual sin. Anyway, but he goes on. He says. He says, "Why would you? Why would I want to punch that dude in the throat? Simple. Not nice Christian boys are the one. One of the reasons why Christianity is not advancing the way Jesus has called us to. Oh, really? Why? Because a nice Christian boy will go to church, Bible study, raise his hands and worship, and go back to wherever he lives, sit at his computer, and look at porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reason why is because Christians wrestle with sins. Mm, yeah. No." Maybe it's because uh, he's wrestling with sins like that because it's not the law that rescues us from those sins. It's the gospel. And let me give you the other uh, article. And this is uh, the one that uh, I was going to get to a couple weeks ago, but I want to put it in. I want to put it in right here because Perry Noble gets half the equation right when he deals with sex sins uh, in a sermon that is written about in this story. Let me read this. This is uh, the name of his South Carolina pastor preaches sex in church written by Audrey Barrick, and I want to point something out here. He gets it half right. It says, a South Carolina megachurch pastor has chosen to press through the awkwardness and talk about what an increasing number of churches have been addressing from the pulpit, that being sex. Pastor Perry Noble of New Spring Church made it clear to his congregation that when it comes to sex, the church has, has a lot to learn. Quote, let's just be honest, sexual immorality is in the house, he told his congregation, adding that he has seen sexual immorality at each of the three churches he has served. Quote, we can't get mad at people that aren't Christians because they act like they're not in Christians. But what we can do is talk about the mess we have in our house and try to get it cleaned up. Perry started the two-week Sex in the Church series last weekend, and will be concluding it on Sunday, September 4th. Though an uncomfortable subject, he has made it clear that the church should not be silent about sex, especially considering the Bible says a lot about the subject of sex. The word is not is the world is not silent about the subject of sex they're talking about it. So starting with men, Perry urged those who have a playlist of songs that degrade women to delete them immediately. Weird. Um, so I just want to point something out on Perry Noble's playlist that he works out to is Highway to Hell. That's okay, but if you got if you have uh, songs on your playlist. Uh, that degrade women, you need to delete them. Now, I agree. That's probably a, that's actually a pretty wise thing to do. And uh, personally, um, I would not have songs that degrade women on my playlist because I couldn't stand such a song. But anyway, he says if we have a song on our iTunes playlist that refers to a woman as a, um, well, as, <laughs> as a female dog or a prostitute, we don't listen to it. In fact, we delete it today because a godly man would never refer to a woman as a 
female dog or a prostitute, the pastor said without hesitation. I know what I said. Don't send me an email, Noble added. Quote, if we're going to esteem women, we can't listen to or watch things on a consistent basis that constantly tear them down. Uh, granted. Now, specifically addressing sex, Noble read several passages from the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament of the Bible where a husband and wife detail how they're enjoying sex. Quote, I'm just reading the Bible here. Noble made clear as he read the passages. God, he said, wants every one of us to have an unbelievable, guilt-free sex life, but sexual satisfaction will only come to us as we seek God's direction. Noble is dedicating two weeks to talking about sex because there are some in the church who will not surrender their lives to Christ, believing they will not be forgiven for their past sexual sins. He explained he also is addressing the subject because some are not willing to give up their current sexual activities when, in fact, Jesus would replace it with something better. On Sunday, Noble plans to go further into the matter of covenant of the covenant of marriage. Providing a preview, the pastor said, there is no alternative to what God established, which is marriage between a man and a woman. Quote, I'm speaking about homosexual marriage, he said clearly. Government and culture cannot redefine what God has clearly defined. Acknowledging the homosexuals attend New Spring, Noble said they are welcome there and no one is more excited about their attendance than he is. He further apologized to them for the way the church has treated you. Only in the church culture, especially in the South, can a man addicted to pornography look down at somebody that has problems with sex with homosexuality he lamented that's over in the church it's done i'm just going i'm not going to endorse that but he also emphasized i love you enough to tell you the truth what you're doing right now is not god's best for your life in the scripture it's called a sin um jesus christ is powerful enough to pull you out of that sin and what i'm Articulating right now is not hate speech because I would tell the adulterer and the pornographer the same thing I would tell you. It's a sexual sin that needs to be repented of. New, Tree, New Spring Church currently has five campuses and also broadcasts its services live on the Internet. Now, I want to point something out here. Noble's half right. And what I mean by that is, is that he's absolutely right about the fact that uh, sexual immorality is that. It's a sin. But what's missing from this? What is missing from this presentation? What is missing from this uh, way of addressing that particular sin? Answer, the forgiveness of that sin. The forgiveness of it. We're called to preach law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What Noble has done here and what he continues to do on a regular basis is preach law and the solution to uh, our breaking of the law as more law. You've, uh, you've, you're guilty of doing this sin or that sin, so the solution is stop doing it. Uh, yeah, you skip something. You skip something really, really, really important. And that is this. Christ bled and died for those sins. God's wrath is propitiated. God's Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. Repent and believe this good news. You see, the reason why Christians do, do good works, and this includes fidelity to, to spouse, the reason they do good works is not because they think that by doing so they earn brownie points with God. Instead, the reason why Christians do good works is because they have a new nature. They've been regenerated, and that new nature does good works. And those good works, it wants to do them, period. And so the idea is, is that uh, when you don't do a good work but you do the contrary thing, it has to be called out for what it is, 
a sin. And you need to be brought back to the forgiveness of sins won by Christ because it's the gospel that gives us the power and truly the motivation to do good works and to mortify our sinful flesh and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Preaching preaching the law to identify the problem is the right thing to do, and Perry Noble did that very well. But preaching the law as the solution misses the misses the solution because if the law is powerless the law cannot give you the power to obey it it can only condemn you the true power in sanctification in fact the only place where you're going to find it the power to mortify the sinful flesh it's not in the law it's in the gospel read the book of galatians read the book of galatians again with law and gospel in these categories in mind the idea here is is that we mortify the sinful flesh by the spirit and the spirit is and that's done via the gospel not the law so when a pastor preaches law to identify and condemn sin he's doing he's using the law lawfully and doing it right so perry noble did the right thing here in using god's law to identify sexual sin and call it out for what it is including the sin of hypocrisy which is what he touched on with those who are addicted to porn who are not then looking down their noses in self-righteousness at somebody who is caught up in the sin of homosexuality. He absolutely was spot on there. But where he fell flat is in the solution. The solution isn't more law. The solution is the gospel. Only through the gospel, only through the gospel, do does sin lose its power and its grip over us. Only through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And when you preach law and gospel correctly, then what happens is is that it'll it gets rid of self righteousness because everybody comes to the same table to the same church sinners in need of the forgiveness of sins and given the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. But when you preach law and more law, in the, the odd thing is is it actually creates the atmosphere that the hypocrisy that Perry Noble was preaching against can breed and foster and fester. Okay, it's law and gospel, not law and law. That's not the way to do it. So anyway, just I thought I'd point that out. Okay, we are up on our first break. We're running a little bit long here. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, the law can condemn you and point out your sin, but it can never give you the power to obey it. The power is in the gospel, not the law. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. The uh, one that says Join Our Crew is uh, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, looking at my time here, I'm going to I'm going to do two well, two maybe three stories. We're going to save the TD Jakes one for tomorrow, but uh the BD on Abuile uh last week wrote a uh, an article entitled Multi-site churches are from the devil. Multi-site churches are from the devil. Okay. Now, it's a, it's a provocative title, but hear him out here. I think he makes some great, great points, and I'd like to see some of the seeker-driven guys address the substance of his criticism. Uh, Thabiti writes, he says, Okay, that title is homage to James McDonald, who says that congregationalism is from Satan, and whom I had the privilege of spending a couple of days with at a recent Nine Marks Southeastern Conference. During the Baptist 21 panel, our moderator stirred up a bit of honest uh, of a hornet's nest by asking me what I thought about multi-site churches. Why me? I thought Mark De- Mark Dever is sitting right there. He loves talking about this stuff. Oh man, ask me about basketball. So after I finished my pity party, I answered my brother's question, stated something like this. 
Thabiti, what arguments for multi-site have you found persuasive? My articulate response was um, none. Okay, this should be the end of the post, but because I'm in the in the Miami airport and the people watching has become a bit weird, I think I'd rather invite you into all my misery and discovery. Number one, idolatry. At bottom, I think the kind of multi-site churches, realizing there are a few different approaches, that feature one pastor being beamed into several sites around a region, and in some cases around the country or world, is simply idolatry. It's certainly cult of personality multiplied and digitized for a consumer audience. As a brilliant young man remarked to me this morning, the pastor now becomes the new icon in the midst of the Protestant worship service. Well, that's a great point. Wow. I think that's well said. Video multi-site tends to idolatry, pride, and self-promotion, even where the ambition of spreading the gospel is genuine. In other words, the ends do not justify the means because some of the ends produced will undoubtedly be odious in God's sight. Now, I can hear folks pushing back saying, there's cult of personality in small churches with no screens, etc. Well, to be sure. But here's the difference. In that small church where the pastor is live, his life is visible, and the accountability of the congregation is far more achievable, the people get to see his warts, and stand half a chance of speaking into his life, even dismissing him if he needs dic if it needs dictate. Such accountability can go terribly wrong, but it's nigh unto impossible the farther the pastor gets away from the congregation he serves. I can't think of being farther away than being beamed in remotely. Moreover, the guy standing live before a pulpit stands on biblical ground. The guy standing on airwaves has chosen a medium without biblical grounds and a medium with greater, more efficient idol-making potential wired into it. The heart is an idol factory. The screen cranks that factory up several levels. Number two, pride in competition. Try as one might, I can't escape the conclusion that those who take the multi-site option are effectively saying, my preacher is better than your preacher, so we're going to brand him and export him to a theater near you. That's crass, I know, but... That's really the bottom line. Even during our panel discussion, the main argument for multi-site was, quote, our best preacher should do all the preaching because the other guys are gifted differently or aren't as good. Now that's disturbing, and it's disturbing precisely because it elevates one preacher above all others. And despite protests to the contrary, it intentionally neglects the development of other preachers who are good enough. Furthermore, doesn't it confuse a person's gifting with God's blessings? A church is a large is large not because the guy up front is has unusual gifts, but because God in his sovereign kindness has decided to add to the number. Besides, why would you have elders at multi site location and not appoint a main preacher or a team of preachers from among them? Why intentionally opt for an absentee pastor? Why make best the enemy of good? Why, unless there lurks a merchandising and marketing monopoly spirit driving the expansion of my church at the expense of other more biblical and longer-term effective methods? Many of my multi-site brothers are doing a great job at planting churches, and they do have methods for training young men. But from the distance of the Caribbean, at least, it looks and sounds like the reps the young guys receive are not prime-time reps. Preachers are made... 
by preaching. A man who has this gift needs, by God's design, to use this gift. If the video multi-site phenomenon curtails the use of this gift, then it's actually retarding the development of gifted men. It's ironic, really. Many multi-site folks are also theological charismatics who argue for the use of all the spiritual gifts, but the one gift that Paul pays uh, says should take center place, prophecy or preaching, they seem to despise in others. Number three, removes the local from local churches, which brings me to another suspicion. To the extent one argues our main guy must do the preaching and be beamed out, then I think you effectively disavow the local in the phrase local church. A very thoughtful pastor pointed out this morning that he was surely need a better theology of unity of the church beyond the local church, but I think the multi-site, multi-campus strategy that is not speedily and intentionally moving to church planting unravels the local church with an absentee pastor model. Indeed, church becomes a strange moniker for this situation. A church is not just an assembly. It's an assembly that is also a family where the members do all the one do all the one another's and also a body where the joints are connected to supply to one another and a flock kept in corral where the shepherd feeds binds leads and guides in in a personal relationship multi-site churches reduce the family body and flock to an anonymous assembly in that way it trades the lowest common denominator assembling while effectively mimicking local. Number four, idolatry again. And there's another form of idolatry going on in some uh, uh, in some of this strategy. Again, at breakfast, a rather astute young man pointed this out to me. For some of the tech heads among us, the very technology is idolatrous. This young man, a guy who leads the technology ministry at his church and thinks a lot about the theological underpinnings of church's use of technology, told me of a technology convention he recently attended. During the convention, they were given a tour of a well-known megachurch who will remain nameless to protect the guilty. He reflected on barely on the barely muffled oohs and ahs rising from the techies as they got a glimpse of all the techno-wizardry. He felt the same in his own heart, and in a secular culture that that prizes flat screens, Blu-rays, and a host of other man toys, we need to think carefully about the use of technology, for it's possible to not only make an idol of the pixelated preacher posing as pastor from the from some major distance, but to also bow at the shrine of technology itself. Our hearts easily gravitate toward entertainment and celebrity, when the preaching event gets broadcast on screen rather than shared in the flesh and the blood, the same equations that drive our movie and actor choices now drive our preacher and church choices. Number four, or in the next one, pragmatism. Another observation, does anyone else hear the shrill voice of pragmatism in the justifications for multi-site churches? The main retort from many of the, pro- of the proponents is, quote, it works. Now, I'm not afraid of doing things that work, but the claim to it works seemed to me a bit myopic. Works in what way? Well, you begin to hear the statistics and the numbers. We've increased attendance or growing membership or conducted X number of baptisms, for example, but these metrics are blunt. They're not defined by numbers leaving other churches or numbers becoming anonymous in in the massive congregations or numbers who who had once had a personal relationship with their pastors who now do not. 
As a social scientist, I'm not at all impressed with the pragmatic appeal to the gross numbers because contrary to public opinion, these kinds of numbers do not tell the story. And I think the jury is still out on whether it works. That jury won't be in with a verdict for another several decades, I'm afraid. And theologically, the pragmatic appeals to it works persuade very little. Too many other things we're called to be faithful in doing are simply left undone in this approach. If that's true... What exactly is this model working at? Next, cultural captivity. Finally, a word about cultural engagement. Sometimes proponents talk about the strategy's use as a means to redeem certain aspects of the culture, like the use of technology. They say, hey, do you use microphones in your service? Then this technology is fine, too. They argue that it's either a full-on IMAX experience or off to Amish country we go. There's what that perspective lacks, in my opinion, any real deep thought about the structuring elements and assumptions of culture. In other words, most of the talk about culture and technology lives at the superficial level of cultural artifacts, tools, and technologies produced in cultural settings. Little of the conversation goes to the underlying philosophies and worldviews underpinning the technology. Out of what world of thinking and values did this technology arise? How does that world of thinking and values affect our use of it? When we ask the when we ask and answer those questions, then we're starting to probe culture at its source, and only then can we talk credibly about redemption, rejection, and for, uh, reformation of culture. Take for example the use of video. Where does that technology come from? What's its use? What values prompt its creation? In terms of video, a quick answer would be it comes from the world of entertainment. It, its use is fantasy, entertainment, and image making. It promotes image and fantasy and make-believe over the glories of reality with all its warts and beauties. In the adoption of this medium, our technological artifact, are we not also unwittingly adopting cultural assumptions that produce the medium, assumptions that are antithetical to the life and worldviews of the Bible and the Christian? I fear we are, perhaps. And that's why we're sometimes agitated in this in this discussion or nervous about such innovations, but can't quite put our finger on why we're bothered. At the deepest level of cultural being, we feel the antithesis, or at least suspect that it's there. Well, there you have it. That's why multi-site churches are from Satan, or a few quick reflections in a crowded airport on a, in, on a movement in the Lord's Church that we ought to slow down and think about, and in some cases, reverse course. Great, great points uh, by Thabidion Abuile there regarding multi-site churches, and I, I think he's, he's landed it straight up. Next, Fixing the Indemnity by Carl Truman. Carl Truman still weighing in about all the things going on regarding uh, T.D. Jakes, and, uh, in, in his, uh, his, and he's commenting on uh, T.D. Jakes's article regarding co- collateral damage in the church uh, in the invitation of T.D. Jakes to the Elephant Room. Now, I'm going to read that on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, but I'm going to read out of order. I'm going to read Carl Truman's, you know, kind of tag-along to it. So you got to stay tuned tomorrow, or if you want to read ahead, go, you know, find the BD's article. But uh, Carl Truman writes, he says, The events of the last 10 days or so in the wider world of conservative American evangelicalism can surely have left no one in any doubt of the importance of cults of personality and the celebrity in driving significant agendas in that same world. That's right. I think that's one of the reasons 
We have all the problems that we do. And one of the reasons why I picked the sermons that I picked to review here at Fighting for the Faith, you'll notice that uh, many times the people I pick to review sermons here at Fighting for the Faith are the ones who are being held up in this cult of personality, the Furtick's, the Nobles, the Warrens, the Hybels, and others. Um, yeah, because um, I'm no fan of the cult of personality at all. I don't care how popular somebody is. I want to see how faithful to God's word they are. Because one of the things I've noticed is is that there seems to be a direct inverse uh, uh, relationship between how faithful somebody is to God's word and how popular they are as a preacher. Uh, I don't see a huge cult of uh, you know of uh, personality revolving around the best law gospel guys out there. I'd very in, in, in fact, it's pretty hard for those guys to even you know get a hearing nowadays. But you play fast and loose with the scripture. You tell people what they want you what they want to hear. You scratch their itching ears, and uh, well, your your ministry is going to take off like a rocket. And uh, that's one of the things we demonstrate here over and again on fighting for the faith. But anyway, Truman continues he says the extremely negative reactions to my posts earlier this year on the topic of the celebrification. Now look at best naive at worst special pleading by vested interest designed to distract from the obvious. The critics of the contemporary scene need no longer argue for the distorting effect of celebrity on the church world. The actors themselves have shown everyone the reality of the case. Only those in a state of willful denial with a personal investment in maintaining the status quo would argue otherwise. In reality, all that is really left to do with regard to the celebrity culture is to fix the indemnity. On the specific issue of Jake's, the Bidiana Bwili has some thoughtful remarks over at his blog. The best line in his article has to be this, quote, This isn't on the scale of Piper inviting Warren. This is more akin to Augustine inviting Muhammad. That is actually something of an insult to Augustine, but it's a legitimate re rhetoric in the service of a very important point. There are far... There are many further aspects of the Jake's McDonald debacle which are of interest to anyone fascinated by the culture of the current of the current of the parachurch mass movement. It is is it a genuine work of God? Is it like the economy built on a bubble to be exposed in the end as a matter of smoke and mirrors? Is it a bit of a both? No doubt there will be much comment on this issue both at Reformation 21 and elsewhere in in the coming weeks. One preliminary note, however, relates to the appeal not of Jake's, but of the Furtick's, nobles, and those who apparently like to be seen with them. To be blunt, why so much noise about Jake's when Furtick and Noble have, have already apparently been established in the elephant room circle for some time? Now, this is a great point. And uh, I was talking uh, with another uh, discernment blogger to, this afternoon, and I pointed out the fact, I said, look it, I said, bringing T.D. Jakes in was a smart move. And, and the reason why it's a smart move is because with T.D. Jakes in the room, all of a sudden, Stephen Furtick, who is a massive mangler of God's word, all of a sudden he looks like a mainstream Christian. It, it reminds me, there was a, <clears throat> let me tell you a pragmatic story that was once told to me by a retired Baptist minister who grew up during the 60s. And um, yeah, actually, he was doing ministry early, doing youth ministry during the '60s. And uh, what he was trying, what he wanted to do, was to bring a Christian rock and roll band to hold a concert at uh, the local church. 
Um, the problem was is that none of the local churches were really hip on Christian rock and roll at the time, like at all. It didn't matter if they had the word Christian in front of it. And so he came up with a strategy for convincing one of the local pastors to uh, allow them to hold this Christian rock and roll concert. And here's here's his, his strategy. This was a confession that he gave me. He said, all right, so what I did is I found one of the local pastors who was a little bit more progressive in his thinking. And I went to him and I said, listen, I've got this great idea for a uh, an outreach event, and we want to hold it at your church. And the guy said, all right, continue. Tell me more about it. He says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to bring a Christian rock and roll band in, and he, and you can already tell his knuckles were turning white. And what we're going to do is we're going to have go go girls, and there's there's you know there's going to be a, like a mosh pit. It's it's going to be just like uh, yeah, it's it's like going to be one of these love fests right there inside of your uh inside of your congregation. And the guy just looked like he was going to have a heart attack. And you got to understand this in negotiations. You always have throwaway cards. You always have throwaway cards. And so here's the idea. The pastor said, listen, there's no way the elders of this church are going to go with the idea of us having go-go girls and some kind of flowery love fest thing going on inside of our uh, inside of our congregation. I mean, you're, you're, you're crazy if you think that we, we're going to be able to pull this off without me being defrocked. And so... The guy said, all right, well, all right, well, maybe we, well, we won't have the go-go girls then, and and we'll kind of tone back some things. Maybe we can just have the rock and roll concert instead. They said, well, yeah, I, I we could probably just do that. And then he got what he wanted. It makes me wonder, just thinking out loud, if by having T.D. Jakes at the Elephant in the Room conference, if what's really not going on is the uh, is the is that this is some kind of a strategy to get Furtick and Noble into the mainstream of uh, the Young Restless and Reformed movement and uh, and you know and American evangelicalism, I mean because after all, I mean in a room with T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, and a few other guys, who's gonna look? I mean, Jakes is gonna make. Furtick look like uh, he's he's mainstream when Furtick is his mishandling and allegorizing of the biblical text and the things that he does are outrageously bad uh, when you start comparing you know to what he should be doing to what the scriptures teach but in a room with T.D. Jakes all of a sudden Stephen Furtick looks like one of the good guys something to think about anyway and I think Carl Truman's kind of picking up on this. Um, so let me read this again. To be blunt, why so much noise about Jake's when Furtick and Noble have already apparently been established in the elephant room circle for some time? Frankly, they hardly seem any closer to Paul's description of what an elder or overseer should be than Bishop T.D. Jake's. While the hoo-ha and the hand-wringing about T.D., T.D., is it just because he is more notorious and thus harder to uh, hide from public view? Are Furtick and Noble less well-known and thus easier to ignore? Surely it is the same horse, just a different jockey. As one former colleague of mine used to say, are people really surprised that someone comfortable with Furtick has no problem with Jake's? If they are, they should give me a call. I could do them a really good deal on the Brooklyn Bridge." Further, a number of us, a uh, number of non-U.S. correspondents have been checking these two individuals out on YouTube and elsewhere, and have asked, 
how on earth these people are so popular over here. They look odd, and their strange antics are crass. They seem to reek of the phony and the contrived. Why do people fall for them? The answer was provided by a Canadian correspondent. These performers have adopted the style of the American stand-up comic. The swaggering up and down, the, convent, the conversational banter, the faux outrage, the mocking cynicism about anybody who might value decency and order as traditionally conceived, the studied slovenly dress style, the portentous pauses while waiting for a laugh, the ugly profanity, and in some well-known cases, a preoccupation with talking about sex. All of this is, I am told, standard fare among the professionally controversial comics. And, of course, their audiences' congregations respond in similar kind, coming in on cue with mocking laughter, whistles, hoops, and calls. This is not plain preaching as Perkins, Spurgeon, or Lloyd-Jones would have understand it. These stand-up comedian preachers would not work in the church in other parts of the world because aesthetics of plausibility differ from culture to culture. They are not superior or inferior, please note, but merely different. I am not scoring patriotic points here. Confidence men in every culture need to find what idiom works in their locale in order to uh, to part the local gullible or marks from their money and their time. Here in the U.S., it's stand-up. Elsewhere, it will be something different. The history of the evangelical hucksters provides some evidence of this. In the 80s, the televangelists worked with a crass country and western idiom. They still do, uh, see Jan and Paul Crouch, but the super the superannuated uh, nature of the audience on current TBN shows indicates clearly what age group contains the targeted TBN marks. Hank Williams just does not work anymore with the 18 to 35-year-old Americans, but stand-up comedy does. So predictably, the confidence men have adopted the stand-up comedy idiom. If Elmer Gantry were around today, he would not look like Burt Lancaster. He would look like a scruffy stand-up comic. Time to fix indemnity? Mm Mm-hmm. Good points from uh, Carl Truman, and uh, you know some great stuff coming out lately on this. Thank God we got some some heavy hitters getting into this fight now, in a more public way. Um, uh, uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, uh, from time to time on a weekly basis, actually puts up your weekly dose of Charles Spurgeon, and uh, the uh, the topic of today's Spurgeon quote is charity toward heresy. With a wry wry remark about the doctrine of justification by doubt. This is a weekly dose of Spurgeon from the curator of all things Spurgeon, uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. Here's what Spurgeon said. There are some truths which must be believed. They are essential to salvation. And if not heartily accepted, the soul will be ruined. Hear, hear. Now, in the early church, the saints did not say, as the sham saints do now, quote, we must be largely charitable and leave this brother to his own opinion to see he sees truth from a different standpoint and has a rather different way of putting it, but his opinions are as good as our own, and we must not say that he is in error. That is, at present, the fashionable way of trifling with divine truth and making things pleasant all around. Thus, the gospel is debased, and another gospel is then propagated." I should like to ask modern broad churchmen whether there is any doctrine of any sort for which it would be uh, worth a man's while to burn or to lie in prison. I I do not believe they could give me an answer, for if there 
uh, latitudinarianism be correct. Their martyrs were the martyrs were fools of the first magnitude. From what I see of their writings and their teachings, it appears to me that the modern thinkers treat the whole compass of the revealed truth with entire indifference. And though perhaps they may feel sorry that the wilder spirit should go too far in free thinking, and though they had rather they would be more moderate, yet upon the whole so large is their liber liberality that they are not sure enough of anything to be able to condemn the reverse of it as a deadly error. To them, black and white are terms which may be applied to the same color as you view it from different standpoints. Yea, and nay are equally true in their esteem. Their theology shifts like the Godwin sands, and they regard all firmness as so much bigotry. Errors and truths are equally comprehensible within the circle of their charity. It was not in this way that the apostles regarded error. They did not prescribe large uh, hearted charity towards falsehood, or hold up the errorist as a man of deep thought, whose views were refreshingly original. Far less did they utter some wicked nonsense about the probability of their living more faith in honest doubt than in half of the creeds. They did not believe in justification by doubting as our, as our neologians do. They said about the, converse, uh, the conversion of the erring brother. They treated him as a person who needed conversion and viewed him as a man who, if they were not converted, would suffer the death of his soul and be covered with a multitude of sins. They were not such easy-going people as our cultured friends of the school of modern thought, who have learned at, the la at last that the deity of Christ may be denied, the work of the Holy Spirit ignored, the inspiration of the Scripture rejected, the atonement disbelieved, and regeneration dispensed with, and yet the man who does all this may be as good a Christian as the most devout believer." O oh God, deliver us from this deceitful infidelity, which, while it does damage to the erring man and often prevents his being reclaimed, does yet more mischief in our own hearts by teaching us that truth is unimportant and falsehood a trifle, and so destroys our allegiance to the God of truth and makes us traitors instead of loyal subjects to the King of Kings. Hear, hear. Amen. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Q. 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We're going to be listening to a Carrie Shook sermon, and uh, the reason I picked this is uh, specifically because of how he twists God's word here. It's a particular type of twisting. And Carrie Shook is one of the uh, major guys in the cult of personality in the uh, seeker-driven movement. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon uh, comes to, a via, to us via Kerry Shook Ministries, Fellowship of the Woodlands, Woodlands, Texas. That's a suburb of uh, Houston. The name of the sermon is The Flood of Anxiety and Fear. I mean, you could tell from the name of this thing that, that where this is going to go. The flood of anxiety and fear. It's supposedly talking about Noah's flood. And uh, this is a particular way of twisting God's word that is every bit as wrong as the way the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or anybody else in a cult twists God's word. And first of all, it begins by allegorizing the text, then psychologizing the text, and when you do that, you can find all kinds of things in the text that are not there. So we'll begin with this question. Uh, the flood account that's written for us in the book of Genesis, is the reason why God had the, that story penned was to give us steps and strategies and things that, and principles that we can apply to overcome the flood of anxiety and fear that sometimes seems to overwhelm us in our psychological life. I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds kind of silly. Yet, Carrie Shook is one of the main dudes in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. He's one of the shining stars in their galaxy and pantheon of personality there. So, uh, without any further ado, here is Carrie Shook and the flood of anxiety and fear. Here we go. Thank you for joining us for today's message from Pastor Carrie Shook. For more information about Carrie Shook Ministries, please visit us online at www.carrieshook.org. 
We're looking at how God rescued Noah and his family from a worldwide flood to discover how God wants to rescue us from the flood of anxiety and fear that fills our hearts and minds and threatens to drown our hopes and dreams. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Are your hopes and dreams being threatened to be drowned by fears and anxieties? Well, don't worry. We've got uh, the Genesis account of the flood, and there's principles in there that you can apply to your life so that you don't have to have your dreams and you know, uh, swamped by the flood of anxiety. That's not even remotely close to a proper handling of the biblical text regarding the flood. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter 6. Let's begin, first of all, in the biblical text, and let's take a look at what's going on here. You'll notice we're only six chapters into the book of Genesis, and I can summarize, you know, kind of what's happened up to this point very briefly this way. God created the heavens and the earth. The fir- our first two parents were created on the sixth day of cre- creation. They were Adam and Eve. God made a covenant with them and and basically said, listen, you can eat of any tree in the garden that I've put in you. And there, he put them in the Garden of Eden to tend it. They were gardeners. And uh, But you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. No, no touchy. No touchy. Well, he didn't say no touchy. No eaty. Okay, you can't touch. You can't eat it. Don't eat that stuff. No. Satan, our enemy, comes in and deceives Eve. She listens to him rather than the word of God. And she disobeys God and she eats and she convinces her husband to do the same. And God, at that point, curses the creation and hands down curses to Adam and Eve as a result of their breaking of his word, their disobedience to him. And from there, we we get the story of how Cain and Abel, you know, these are two of the sons of Adam and Eve. I mean, already, you know, the evil and sin, the sinful nature is at work. And Cain murders his brother Abel. And, and then from, you know, from there... You got two different types of, you know, two streams of humanity, those who fear and trust in God and those who basically uh, live for the here and now. That's I think that's a good that's a fair way of summarizing what's happening at this point. And at you've got all of these crazy things going on uh in the sense that humanity is cursed, bad things are going on and Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 begins with this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now we see the depth of, of sin. Now we see the depth of our sinful nature. When we talk about original sin, this is one of the primary texts. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually or all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? Now, these are the generations 
of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the floor of the ark on its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, and of the creeping things of the ground according to its kind. Two of every kind, of every sort, shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now I'm going to pause right there for a second here, and we're going to take a look at a cross-reference passage. If you have your Bible uh, and you're following along, flip on over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to make something clear. One of the things that people mis do when mishandling this text is they somehow make it sound like Noah found favor in God's eyes because of his obedience. Okay? As if somehow obedience to the law, obedience to the commands of God, will make you righteous before God. The answer is, yeah, that'll make you righteous before God if you keep it perfectly. If you don't, well, then you can't be righteous according to the law. The law will only condemn you. So how did Noah find favor in God's eyes? Was it because he was obedient or was it because he had faith and bore fruit in obedience in his life? Hebrews answers the question. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that was seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through faith he died, even though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, by faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay? 
Now, so here's the principle that's at play, and I mean hermeneutic principle that's at play. Scripture interprets Scripture. So because Hebrews 11, 7 says, By faith Noah did the things that he did, and he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We can say with absolute certainty this, Abraham, just like you, just like me, and just like all descendants of Adam and Eve, born according to the natural way that he was a sinner. And that he was saved by faith in the God, by faith in Christ, okay, through the hearing of the gospel. And you're going, well, how did he hear the gospel? Simple. He's a direct descendant of Adam and Eve, of the, the line called the sons of God. And they had the proto-gospel. We call it the proto-gospel, but it was this, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so Hebrews 11.7 makes it clear that Noah was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It doesn't say that he was made righteous by his obedience. He was made righteous by faith. Hebrews 11.7 makes this clear. So this sheds light now on the story that we can understand it and interpret it correctly. So when it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God, why? Because he believed and trusted God. And of those who were living in that day, how many trusted? How many were saved from the flood? The rest of humanity perished. Faith literally bottlenecks down to one family. Chapter 7. So then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with now remember Hebrews eleven seven says that he was the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So God is seeing Noah here through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Noah trusting in the promises that are still to be fulfilled. Christ's righteousness being imputed to him from across time, if you would. So here's what it says. So go into the ark, all you in your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. The male and his mate, the pair, a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also the male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his, and his sons and wives with them went into the ark to escape the water of the flood. Of clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two male and female went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all the flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for a hundred and fifty days. I'm just going to pause here. All of this is a consequence of our sin. This is a story of wrath, of justice, and of mercy. God saving and God punishing. God rescuing and redeeming and God destroying. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided, subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and gave. And, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening. Behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, then waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off of the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, 
go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the ground went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of, the, of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is every beast. It is with for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never shall again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all of all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank from the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. 
a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for three hundred and fifty years. All the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and then he died. So what's this a story about? What principles are you supposed to apply here? This tells of our history as a human race. This tells of the history of our planet. This tells of God's justice. It tells of God's mercy. In this story are both law and gospel. And Hebrews 11.7 makes it clear that we cannot ascribe to Noah that he was righteous of his own righteousness. And if you were tempted to think that he was, then the last incident of him getting drunk and lying naked in his tent should tell you, Noah is a sinner just like you and I. He's reckoned righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant in verse 7, that he is an heir according to the righteousness that comes by faith. There's so much going on here. This is a picture of death and resurrection. It's a picture of how God saves through water. You can think of baptism here. That's what Peter does in his epistle. One thing you can't do with this text is tell this text and say, oh, there's certain principles that you need to apply here in order for you to be psychologically well-balanced. You miss the whole point of the text. And ultimately, this points us to Christ. 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 Who was raised from the dead for us, men, and for our salvation. Who saves us from the coming flood of God's wrath, which isn't a flood of water. No, instead, the coming wrath of God will consume the world by fire. The only hope we have of being saved from the wrath of God is the same hope and the same means by which Noah was saved, by trusting and having faith in God through the promised Savior for the forgiveness of sins, just like Noah did. That's our only hope. So this is a sobering story. Let's see what Carrie Shook does with it. In your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Here we see that in Noah's day, everyone had chosen to reject God's goodness in their life. And the Bible says the earth was filled with violence and murder and wickedness. Some people mistakenly think that this story is all about God's punishment and, and God's wrath because he loves to punish people. But really, they're missing the whole point. This account of Noah is really a story of God's mercy and grace and his power to rescue. See, God comes to... I would say it's both. It's a story of law and gospel. You can't cut the cord here. It's got to be both. To Noah, and this guy who didn't have it all together, who wasn't perfect, but he loved God with all his heart. And God says, no... Okay, go on. <laughs> 
Let me back that sentence up because this is where things really go wrong. Okay, this is the theology where things go. This is it where it goes wrong. Watch this sentence and see if you can reconcile this theologically. I'm backing it up just a little bit. Here we go again. It's power to rescue. See, God comes to Noah. And this guy who didn't have it all together, who wasn't perfect, but he loved God with all his heart. So Noah wasn't perfect, he didn't have it all together, but he loved God with all his heart. No, he didn't. If Noah truly loved God with all of his heart, then he would be sinless. He wouldn't need the righteousness that comes by faith, which is what Hebrews 11.7 says that he had. He would have his own righteousness. If you truly love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, you would not sin and you would not need a savior. You would be perfectly self-righteous, righteous in yourself. To say that somebody doesn't have it all together but loves God with all their heart, that is theologically impossible. Absolutely impossible. That is as impossible as saying that God can create a valley so deep that well, how, how does it go? Uh, that that it that it. it huh. That's like saying that God can create a square circles. There's no such thing as a square circle. And there's no such thing as somebody who doesn't have it all together who truly loves God with all their heart. That, that It's impossible. And God says, Noah, I'm going to send a worldwide flood to destroy all evil. But I want you to build a rescue ship because I'm the God of the second chance. And everyone who enters this ark of mercy and grace will be rescued. And when God came and told Noah this, he was 500 years old at the time. And God allowed human beings to live a lot longer before the flood. And after the flood, the Scripture says that he said that's too long, and he limited our years. But Noah was 500. Now, I don't know what Noah looked like or felt like at 500 in that day. Maybe he didn't look a day over 450. I don't know. <laughs> but I just have to think he was an old guy. And it shows me that you're never too old for God to do something great in your life. It's never too late for God to do something amazing in your life to do something great and amazing in your life I, I just can't imagine that Noah sitting there going man God's done something great and, great and amazing in his life I think it was Peter who tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness and he was vexed to his soul as a result of people's persistence in sin and unbelief and refusal to repent, turn, and be saved. Noah's calling was painful, disturbing, difficult, back-breaking, heart-wrenching. I've seen artist depiction of the flood showing people banging on the doors of the ark and scratching and clawing and begging to be let in. If that's how that went down, 
I don't think Noah considered his calling to be all that great of a blessing. It was bitter, sweet, and mostly bitter. Because God is the God of the second chance, so it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done yesterday. Today is a new day. We have a God of the second chance. God's a God of the second chance. That's not the gospel, by the way. That's actually something very different than the gospel. Because if God's the God of the second chance, well, then you got a second chance. You better get it right the second time because you didn't get it right the first time. And, I mean, just take that theology and plug it into the scenario there with God's the God of the second chance. So apparently the whole flood thing's, you know, God giving the world a second chance. But no sooner do they get off the ark and start, you know, and Noah plants a vineyard, first crop, you know, he uh, gets drunk on the wine and is lying naked and all kinds of terrible things happen to where he curses one of his sons as a result of it. So it sounds to me like Noah and his family blew the second chance. I wonder what hope they had after that. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. God wants to do something amazing in your life. Now, Noah built the ark for 120 years. God wants to do something amazing in my life. Really, that's the gospel? God wants to do something amazing in my life? What if I don't want to do anything amazing? What if I just want to quietly work with my hands in the vocation that God has put me into? God, God wants to do something amazing. I, I, you know, listen, my problem is not that I don't have an amazing life. My problem is, is that I'm a sinner. You got anything for that? And so God would hold back his wrath because of his mercy and grace year after year after year. And God would say, I'm not going to send the flood yet. I'm going to wait another year. Uh, you're isogeting. That's not in the text. Maybe a humankind will turn to me in my goodness and mercy and step into the ark of my grace. I'm going to give him another year. And then God would hold off the flood another year, and yet another year, and yet another year. God is not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 120th chance. Yeah, no, that still is not the gospel. Even if God gave me 120 chances, I'd blow through every single one of them and fail 120 times. If, even if God was the God of the 70 times 7 chances, I would blow through each and every one of those chances and I would not get it right. I need, I need real good news. I need a crucified and risen Savior who's taken on the full wrath of God in my place and gives me his righteousness as if it's my own. The one who got it right the first time, Jesus. That's how much our God loves us. His mercy and grace is beyond our comprehension. But finally, the flood came. I want you to stand in honor of God's Word, and let's just follow along with me as I read the account of Noah from Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 13. So God said to Noah, Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So the ark was six times longer than it was wide. And interestingly, that's the same ratio that shipbuilders, modern shipbuilders use today. God's wisdom is just amazing. He said, make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. 
I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Dear God, we come to you today and and we're excited to learn. And uh, this is such an interesting account of how you acted in Noah's life to rescue him. And I pray that we would learn from this, but Lord, more importantly, we admit to you that each and every one of us is experiencing a flood of our own, flood of anxiety and fear and stress. Oh, man, see, there we go. So we're all experiencing a flood of our own, the flood of anxiety, fear, and stress. Allegorizing, psychologizing, and as a result of it, we're not hearing the good news at all. Because of the problems and pressures in our lives. And so we know that you're God who rescues, and we know that you care about everything we go through. So I pray today that you would rescue every one of us. And Lord, you know what our needs are. You know the request. You know what we're going through. And everyone here, Lord, you know their name and their number, and you care about what they're going through. And I, I just pray that somehow, some way, that during these next few minutes, you would just meet us right where we are and show us that you're real and powerful in our lives and you'd change us forever. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So you think you've got problems. You think you've got stresses. Just think about Noah. And God's told Noah to build this boat that's one and a half times bigger than a football field. And somehow he's supposed to put 20,000 animals into it. And then God says, oh, and by the way, Noah, the whole survival of the human race depends on how you handle this little project that I'm giving you right now. Mm, yeah, um, the text doesn't say that. Um, doesn't even remotely hint at any kind of narrative along those lines. No pressure. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take near that much for me to freak out. It doesn't take near that much for me to stress. In fact, I stress over my daily schedule. But it's not how big or how small your problems are that determine your stress level. It's how you react to your problems that determine your stress level. So apparently the reason why God the Holy Spirit had uh, the Noah flood account penned is to give us strategies for dealing with our stress levels. Yeah, I'm not buying it. See, first I want you to see that I'm flooded with fear when I try to control everything. Now, in Noah's day, everything in society was completely out of control. So if we're to take a one-for-one metaphor to metaphor, um, you know, allegorizing uh, technique here, remember, God sent the flood as a judgment. So should I take it, should I then assume that if I'm having a flood of stress in my life, that the reason why I'm having that is because God is judging me? Uh, There was violence and murder and chaos reigned. And Noah could have tried to control the circumstances all around him. He could have said, I've got to change all these awful circumstances all around me. I've got to try to get control of this whole civilization. I've got to try to change all these people. It's my job to change them. But Noah knew that wasn't his job. Notice this is flat-out eisegesis. He's just reading stuff into the text that, I mean, isn't even close to there. I mean, what's the point of having a text if you're just going to invent your own? 
He knew that was beyond his control. Here's the secret in Genesis 6.22. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah didn't worry about all the things that God hadn't commanded him to do. And Noah didn't worry about all the things that were beyond his control. Noah didn't worry about all the things everyone else wanted him to do. He was just concerned about the things God commanded him to do. Yeah, so now we're psychologizing, allegorizing, and uh, and at this point, legalizing. I mean, this is all law. Where's the gospel in this? Hebrews eleven seven tells us that Noah believed, he trusted, he had faith in God, and he was one who was counted righteous by faith. Huh. And there are a lot of things you can do in life, but there are only a few things God calls you to do. And one of the reasons we're so anxious and stressed is because we're trying to do so many things that God never intended for us to do. We're trying to control. Yeah, I'm sure that's right, but why are you using this text for that point? things that God never intended for us to control. In fact, your stress and your anxiety is just a, a warning, an alarm clock that kind of goes off to say, you're trying to control something God never meant for you to control. So I'm flooded with fear when I try to control everything. And then I'm flooded with fear when I try to please everyone. Bill Cosby said, I don't know the secret to success, but I know the secret to failure is trying to please everyone. The quickest way to drown in your anxiety is to care a lot about what everyone else thinks about you. The writer of Hebrews gave us some insight into Noah's motivation. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Underline that phrase, things not yet seen. For when God told Noah there would be a worldwide flood and he was to build this ark... It had not yet rained on the earth yet. In fact, the Scripture says that God would water the earth with the dew of the ground and the springs from under the ground. So Noah had never seen rain, and here God tells him it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, this huge flood, and Noah believes God, even though he's never seen this before. He's going, I don't know what rain is, God, but I trust you and I believe you. I know that you're trustworthy, and I'm going to obey you. Can you just imagine Noah's neighbors coming by going, Noah, what are you building in your yard there, man? Uh, Carrie, you forgot the part about by this, by this faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If you want to know what that means, the righteousness that comes by faith, take a look over at Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. You see this, this theme here? This is the same thing that, theme that was going on at the beginning of uh, the, the flood story, about how every inclination of the heart of man was only evil all the time. No one seeks God. No one understands. All have turned aside. They've together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, this includes Noah, by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is referring to, that Noah was one who was declared righteous, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. But now the righteousness of the, the diakai sune to theu, possessive, the righteousness of God apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God. There it is again, the diakasune de theu. God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous or justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. This includes Moses. This includes Noah. This includes Jonah. This includes anybody in the Old Testament. We hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, we do not then overthrow the law by this faith. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited or imputed to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but they are counted as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works of the law. Says David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now this is exactly 
This is exactly what the writer to he, the Hebrews is talking about here in verse 7. Hebrews eleven seven By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was declared righteous not by works of the law. Noah was justified by faith. The diakasune to theu, the righteousness of God being imputed to him by belief, by faith, as a gift. And the works that he did were the fruit of his repentance, were the fruit of his faith, were the fruit of his trust in God. They showed us that his faith was alive. He wasn't declared righteous by his obedience. He was declared righteous by faith, and his obedience that bore fruit there was the fruit of his faith, showing that his faith was alive. What the Bible teaches regarding Noah is opposite of what Kerry Shook is teaching regarding him, and it matters. It's the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. It's the difference between sound doctrine and false doctrine. It's the difference between light and darkness, truth and error, and it matters. Because if you believe the gospel that Kerry Shook is preaching, which is no gospel at all, then you are in danger of the fires of hell. Did the community association approve that? Because that looks kind of sketchy to me. I'm not sure about that. And Noah's going, no, but God approved it, and God told me to do this because there's going to be this flood that's going to come on the earth, and, and help me with the ark, and, and I want your family to come inside this ark of mercy and grace and be safe from the flood, and it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. And they're going, what's rain? Noah, you're crazy. Noah was ridiculed. He was made fun of. He was put down for 120 years until he was proved right. Can you imagine what it would be like for the most influential people in society to look at you like you're crazy and to ridicule you and to put you down? But see, Noah wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. He was seeking to please God. And if you want to get rid of the flood of anxiety in your heart and mind... You have to stop worrying about what everyone else thinks about you and be concerned about what God thinks about you. If you seek to please God first, you're not going to please everyone. It's as simple as that. And if you seek to please everyone, you're not going to please everyone. It's as simple as that. You can't do it. But when you please God first... Really? Um, hmm, how do you do that? The flood of anxiety leaves your life. It's amazing how that happens, but if you're always trying to please everyone, you're going to be filled with fear because so many of us are trying to please people that don't even care if we go under when the floods of life hit. We're skipping over the people who love us the most to try to impress people who don't even care about us, and it makes no sense, and that's why we're so filled with anxiety because we're trying to control things that we can't control. Jesus put it this way in Matthew six thirty three, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all... And his what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
God is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is faithful to save. All these things will be given you as well. Underline the word seek first, and then underline the phrase, these things will be given you. When you stop worrying about all the things that you need in life, and you put God first, he gives you all the things you really need in life. This is law. If you put God first, then he'll give you what you need in life. This is law. This is the, the, the gospel preaches the exact opposite of this. That's why you ought to connect a line from seek first to these things. You seek God first and all the other things fall into place. I don't have to write out my top 50 priorities. I just need that first priority, my central priority. And then God helps all the other priorities fall into place. When I put God first, he gives me all the things that I really need. All these other things are given to me as well. And what I really need is peace in the middle of all the stress in society today. Peace in the middle of all the chaos. His control when everything seems to spin out of control around me. When I put God first, I'm flooded with peace. When I give up control and I realize I'm not in control, but that God is in control, I'm flooded with peace. It's a great feeling. When I'm trying to control the situation, Notice that the peace he's referring to is some kind of psychological feeling of well-being. The peace that God offers humanity is, is the kind of peace that you have at the end of a war, a ceasing of hostilities. ...or problem in my life, and then I give it up to his control and go, God, I give up, I can't control it. Oh, it's a great feeling because I'm flooded with his supernatural peace. Anxiety and fear is just an alarm going off telling me there's something in my life. I'm there's nothing about anxiety and fear mentioned in the entire Noah narrative. Trying to control that I need to go give over to God. Now, when I put anything other than God as first in my life, some other things will be added unto me as well. Some things I don't really need. If you put anything other than God at the center of your life, you make anything other than God the central priority of your life, then there will be some other things that will be given to you that you don't need. And whatever you put at the center of your life opens the door to other things. And the other things that you don't need are fear and selfishness. When I put something other than God at the center of my life, I'll be flooded with fear. So when I fear God, I won't fear anything else. If I fear God first, I won't fear anything else. But if I don't fear God first, I'll fear everything else. And then I'm flooded with selfishness when I don't put God first. When I don't have a God-first attitude, I develop a me-first attitude. When I'm not God-centered, I become very self-centered. Self-centeredness can also mean that I'm trying to control things that only God can control because that's pride to think that I can control something that only He can control. You know, it was weird is, is he makes it sound like it's just super, super simple to just put God at the center of your life. And once you do that, God will say, oh, look, you're being obedient, and then I'll bless you. Problem is, even our good works are filthy rags. In the menstrual rag department, that's what the description is. All of our good works are as filthy rags. Or as Jesus says, and even if you've done everything I've commanded you to do, say that we are just unworthy servants because we've only done what we've been told to do. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's a, just snap your fingers, click your heels together. No problem. Just make God first. You first, Carrie. Go ahead. Show us how it's done.
But when I put God first, I'm flooded with the right things. I'm flooded with peace, and I'm also flooded with provision. In Proverbs 3, 6, it says, In everything you do, put God first, and He will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Underline the word success. God says, If you put me first, I will meet your needs. I will provide for you. I will see you through. Now, God, if, 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 if you put me first, then I will. This isn't a promise. This is just a condition. You do the right amount of work. You earn as a wage particular blessings. This is all law. Yet the passages I just read from Romans 3 and 4 make it very clear. We are declared righteous by faith, not by works. We are declared righteous by trusting, by faith and belief, not as a wage, but as a gift, by a promise. God's provision and success doesn't mean you will never have floods sweep into your life. Noah didn't get to skip the flood. He experienced the worst flood the world has ever seen. But God gave him the power to be rescued to rise above the floodwaters and to float on the surface. And God's provision doesn't mean that you'll never experience a flood. God's provision doesn't mean you'll never lose a job. It doesn't mean you'll never lose a loved one. It doesn't mean that you'll never experience panic attacks or depression. It doesn't mean you'll never struggle in a relationship. Yeah, why is it that we live in a world where we have worry and panic attacks and depression and things like that? I mean, all of this is psychological disorders, if you would or psychological setbacks, how come, where did all of this come from? Those are merely the fruit of our sin. Those are the consequences of our sin. Relationship. It doesn't mean you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean you'll never experience the flood of pain and problems. It does mean that no matter how high the floodwaters rise, God will help you rise above the floodwaters. Really? Uh, you got that out of Genesis 6. Really? Where is that promise made to you and me in Genesis 6? Where in Genesis 6, 7, or 8 does it say anything about God giving us the ability to rise above the flood riot waters of anxiety and fear and things like that? It doesn't. See, sometimes we want God to stop the flood in our life. We want God to take the problem out of our life. And sometimes God rescues us by stopping the floodwaters. But many times God rescues us by helping us rise above the floodwaters. I thought God rescued us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. I thought that's the rescue that the Bible teaches. Why aren't you telling us about that? And God wants to bring you through the floodwaters. He says, I will provide for you. I will see you through if you put me first. So how I'll see you through if you put me first. That's law. That's self-righteousness. That's not the gospel. That's by God will see you through if you um, perform works of the law. Big difference. How do I put God first? That's what I want to know. Please share with us. I'm sure it's really easy because that brings about God's rescue power in my life, and it relieves my stress and anxiety and fear. How do I put him first? Well, let me give you a real practical way to put God first, 
Rick Warren, a good friend of mine, gave me this acrostic of the word first years ago, and I've used it in my life ever since. It's a way that I measure my life. You know, periodically I'll say, am I putting God first? And I'll me- So you have some, an acrostic from Rick Warren. That's how you can tell if you're putting God first. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Measure it based on this acrostic because it really shows if I'm putting God first or not. It's a real practical, measurable way to see if God is the central priority of my life. Well, let's look at it. F stands for finances. Put God... Really? So the way I can tell I'm putting God first in my life is F for finances. Why am I not surprised? God first in your finances. Let's just start with the most difficult one first. Why don't you start with the Ten Commandments? First commandment, you will have no other gods before me. Um, yeah, finances, uh, that could be a false god, but let's look at it in light of the first commandment. Why are we going with Rick Warren's acrostic first, which have five points, rather than looking at the Ten Commandments? Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income, and he will fill your barns to overflow. God says, Give me the first part back, and I'll bless the rest. Did you know that that was spoken to ancient Israel? That's not, that is not what Christians are obligated to do now. But the scripture says money is the number one test of our priorities. It's not what I say is important that's important in my life. It's how I spend my money that shows what's important in my life. How you spend your money shows what's first place in your life. In Deuteronomy 14.23, it says, The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. Underline the word tithing. What's tithing? Well, it just means a tenth or 10%. God says, the first 10% of all I make goes back to Him. Why? I mean, why 10%? Why not 30%? Why not 5%? Why 10%? Because that's what God said. God said 10%, and He wants me to learn to trust Him. The purpose is to teach me to put God first in my life. If you're in a financial mess right now, the best advice I can give you is your pastor who cares about you is put God first in your finances because whatever area you want God to bless, you put him first in that area. Uh, so whatever area you want God to bless, you put him first in that area. You got any passages that say that? And what does this have to do with the flood of Noah? And then he starts working in that area of your life. If you're under financial stress and 64% of all arguments in marriage are over finances, Put God first in your finances, and you watch the stress level start to go down as you see God work in your finances. Chris and I have done this ever since we were married, is put God first and give back that first 10%. Yeah, I know. Obeying God is just so simple. You and your wife have done it for years. And it, it, it's so important, and, and that's one of the reasons why we have a strong marriage, because we know that God's first in that area of our lives. Mm, well, why- so you have a strong marriage because you tithe. Why is tithing so important? Why is it so important to follow God's specific instructions when it comes to finances? Well, why was it important for Noah to follow God's specific detailed instructions when it came to constructing the ark? I mean, Noah could have built the ark 422 feet long and go, God, I really tried here. That's pretty good. I mean, that's okay, isn't it? That's going to work. This is not a valid inference from the text at all. But Noah followed every little detail that God gave him. Why was that important? Well, one reason, so he wouldn't drown. But the most important reason was God was trying to see if Noah really trusted him in the details of life. If Noah really trusted him, 
If Noah would have just said, yeah, that's good enough, God, or, oh, I know that's not quite what you said, but it's what I think's best. I know that it's... This isn't even a valid, this isn't even a valid illustration. You're, you are so mangling the Noah story, it's like beyond recognition at this point. It's clearly, your word is so clear and specific, but hey, I don't think you really care. If Noah would have said that first, he would have drowned. But more importantly, he showed God that God was the central priority in his life. Because when I obey God and the specific instructions that he gives me, it shows that I trust him with the things that are really important to me. And he's given me very specific instructions about finances. And he says, if I follow these specific instructions, then there's a specific promise. He will meet my needs and he will see me through and he will provide for me. If I'm not following God's specific... So the only way God will provide for you is if you buy it. You have to purchase God's provision for your life. It costs 10% of your money. Instructions when it comes to tithing, then God's not really first place in my life because God knows how important finances are to us. If God's not first place in an area that's so important in my life, then he's probably not first place in my life at all. And when I obey him... In these details of life, it shows that I trust him with things that are really important to me. Then I... Notice the confusion of law and gospel there. ...is interests. If God is really going to be first in my life, then he has to be first in my finances, and he has to be first in my interests. I need to involve him in everything that's important to me. In Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Underline that phrase, walked with God. Whatever he did, he practiced the presence of God. This is really... Oh, that's a miserable term. You know, I bristle when uh, Pentecostals use that term. Uh, not Pentecostals. Protestants use that term. The reason why, practicing the presence of God. Who, who is that? Bro Brother Lawrence? It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a phrase that comes out of Roman Catholic uh, you know, uh, piety and, and mysticism and, and monasticism and stuff like that. It's 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 a convoluted term, and I don't think we can uh, we can save it. Um, yeah, I uh, don't particularly care for it. Important because it doesn't just mean that he took a walk with God. I'm sure he did that too, but it means that wherever he walked, he knew that God was with him, and he practiced the presence of God. And wherever you go, just know that God is with you, and and put him first in whatever you're doing. See, we're, right now we're learning the five things using a Rick Warren acrostic. And if you do these five things, then you know you've put God first in your life. Uh, number one, you're tied. Number two, you watch your interests, you know, the things you're interested in. When you go to your workplace, talk to him during your day and just say things like, God, help me be patient with my boss. He's a jerk. Help me. I need it. Just don't pray out loud, but just pray silently. And God, I need, your, I need your strength in this presentation. I'm nervous. Just give me your strength. God, I, I need your wisdom to solve this problem. Just know that he's with you. Put him first in your work, in your hobbies, in your fun, in anything you do. Just acknowledge God's there with you and say, God, I give this to you. I want you to be first. Everything you do, you put God first. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Then ours relationships. Proverbs 12, 26 says, the righteous choose their friends carefully. If you want God first in your life, you have to choose your friends carefully. And you may be thinking, Carrie, what in the world do my friends have to do with me putting God first in my life? 
Yeah, so if you want to make sure that you're putting God first in your life, number one, finances, that means tithing. Number two, interest, uh, apparently that's practicing the presence of God. And number three, relationships. Well, the truth is, if you really want God first in your life, there's some friendships, some relationships are dead wrong for you. So you got to cut them. Because you become like the people you spend time with. And it's a lot easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. And so if you're going to put God first, you've got to choose your friendships carefully. Choose people who are going the right direction. Not people who are perfect or have it all together, but people who really are going the right direction. This is crucial. You can't put God first, and then all your closest friends are going the opposite way. You've got to pick some friends, real close friends, who are going the right direction, and single adults. So you know that you've put God first if your relationships are in order, you have the right interests, and your finances are properly aligned in the tithing direction. This is so... Now, now, notice that God gave ten commandments on Mount Sinai. Rick Warren only gives five. Isn't he nice? Important. See, you will marry someone who you date. Let that sink in from... Oh, Carrie, you're so profound. Wow. (laughs) Your wisdom amazes me. You're going to marry someone you date. Okay. Yes, write that down. That's life-changing. What I'm saying is, if you don't date losers, you won't marry a loser. Okay? Write that down, too. That will. Say- so if you don't marry a loser, then you know that you've helped. That, that's part of the way you know that you've made God first in your life. Really? Huh? Yeah. Save you a lot of pain, okay? It's like, wow, this is, this is so amazing. The depth and the wisdom of Pastor Kerry. Oh, what he gleans from Scripture. But many single adults don't ever apply that. You know, they, they don't realize. And I'll say, well, you know, maybe I'm dating this guy and he's kind of going the wrong direction, but it's not that big a deal. No, you marry someone you date. So don't date a loser and you won't marry a loser. Be choosy on who you date. Be careful about it. But then S is schedule. Schedule. Put God first in your schedule. Jesus gave us his example in Mark 135. It says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. I love that. Jesus, the Son of God, put his heavenly Father first in his schedule by giving him the first part of his day. Uh, See, that's the heavenly time management passage. So there's five things. Uh, Number one, finances. Next is interest. Next is relationships. Then schedule. See, if you just get all these five areas in alignment, then presto blamo, uh, it's just like instant coffee. You are instantly now making God first in your life. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? And then the disciples came and said, Jesus, what are you doing? Everyone's looking for you. Important people want to see you. You're disappointing people. You're not pleasing people. You've got important things to do, and what are you doing? And Jesus said, so, I'm doing the most important thing. I'm meeting with the most important person, my heavenly Father. When I put God first, God blesses the rest of my day. That's right. This is all law. God blesses you based upon your obedience. If I put God first in my day, he blesses the rest of my day. 
It's just this principle of putting God first. Whatever area you want God to bless you, put him first. In. So easy. Just make him first. Come on, get to it. Just apply this print, these five things. Get going. In it. That's what fearing God means. It means respecting him so much that you think he's the most important person that you're going to meet that day. It's the most important appointment that you're going to have that day. Well, then T is troubles. When a storm comes into your life and the floodwaters rise, who do you turn to? See, the storms and stresses are part of God's plan for my life. So many times I pray for God to take the storm out of my life. I pray for God to stop the floodwaters from rising when God wants to help me rise above the floodwaters. You see, I'm interested in God changing my circumstance, but God's more interested in changing me through the circumstance. I love it when God changes the circumstance and works a miracle, and he'll do that at times in your life, but most of the time he will change you through the circumstance because he wants to make you into what he's called you to be. Now, I want to point something out. Nowhere in Scripture do you find this list of five so-called applications spelled out as the means by which you achieve making God first in your life. This is nowhere found in the Bible anywhere as a coherent teaching laid out this way. This is Rick Warren's discovery all by himself. And I should point out, you can't actually derive this from the Genesis account of the flood as any kind of valid application from that text. You can't. And it's built on a faulty presupposition that somehow you in your own ability are capable of just making decisions to change behaviors and tweak attitudes and things like that. And by doing so, you are capable of making God first in your life. If that's the case, then you don't need Jesus. You just need good advice. You don't really need a crucified and risen Savior. You just need you know, the secret success tips for how to obey God's law perfectly. This is a Christless Christianity. This is a gospelless Christianity. You can't make sense of the gospel in this Christianity. And by the way, why is it that Kerry Shook, via Rick Warren's thing here, this classic finances, interest, relationships, schedule, and troubles, has uh, somehow been able to find the missing secret ingredients, the secret combination to making God first in your life? Nowhere in the history of the Christian church do you find any of the ancient church fathers laying out this sermon, finding these principles in the, in the Noah story, because they're not there. This is a false gospel, basically with a faulty presupposition that you make yourself blessable by God by your obedience. The storms and the stresses and the floods that come into our lives are opportunities, opportunities for God to grow us, to become more like Him. I want you to look at this last verse, Psalm 50, 15. It says, And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. That's God's 911. God says, You can call me anytime. I'm never too busy. You'll never get a busy signal. Call me anytime, and I'm always there to answer. I don't care what you've done or where you've been. This day is a new day. I'm the God of the second chance. 
Call upon me and I will deliver you. God of the second chance. There we go again. That's not the gospel. That means you still have to get it right the second time. Sometimes I'll deliver you by taking the problem out of your life, but sometimes I'll deliver you by taking you through the problem and seeing you through. But you will make it through. Let's bow together. Lord, I know that... No, we're done. Yeah, I'm hammering hard on this point. This is not the gospel. This is not Christianity. This is flat-out patent works righteousness. I mean, this is just an invented religion that borrows from Bible passages uh, to basically create the air, the impression that this is somehow uh, what the Bible teaches. But the Noah story teaches none of this stuff. That was an allegorized, psychologized, different gospel based upon your obedience, not the obedience of Christ. You believe that stuff? You are literally in danger of the fires of hell. Literally. Hmm. Pray for Carrie Shook. Pray that somebody gets a hold of that man and preaches the truth to him so that he repents. Yikes. All right, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio, and we definitely do depend upon your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. Visit our website and uh, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons to uh, help support us so that we can keep doing what we're doing. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.